Please be seated. I know it is the practice of Rabbi David and the tradition of this congregation to do the Shema. Um, However, uh, you can take the boy out of the CLC, but you cannot take the CLC out of the boy. And we don't necessarily do that down the hall. Um, I like to just start rolling, um, which is what I'm going to do. Uh, A couple of things. One, thank you for having me back. Um, Again, I don't know what I said last time that caused the two-year hiatus. Uh... Maybe it was the fact that I was wearing shorts. Um, I'm sure the choir will remember that I had a suit up top and beach down low. I had shorts down low because I had ruptured my Achilles tendon, and I was on crutches and had a huge cast, and they got to see the lovely legs of Crocker um, back there because I stood in the pulpit, which was awkward for everyone. Um, But uh, I'm happy to be back, and you get me two weeks in a row. I know. You're excited. I can tell. Um... No, please, please, please. And it's ironic that David uh, has chosen the two people that he has chosen um, to stick me with, right? Tamar and Rahab uh, next week. Because, yeah, everybody wants to preach about prostitutes. Yes. Um, Hey, Michael, come into the sanctuary this summer and talk about women of the night. Sure, Dave, no problem. That's how the conversation went. Actually, um... Those were two of my suggestions. And he's like, oh, you want to suggest those two people? Why don't you take them when you're in the sanctuary? So uh, here we go. Uh, If I were to say to you, if I were to ask you a question, do you think you are a righteous person? You know, know, let's just get it all out there. You can just open up your heart to yourself. And if I said, hey, do you think you're righteous? Raise your hand if you think you're righteous. I applaud the honesty of some of the older of our generation who are like, yeah, I got it down. Um, And some of you are thinking, well, humility is part of righteousness, so I therefore cannot raise my hand um, because I am humble. But sometimes I think we think we are a little bit more righteous than we are. I mean, the goal is that we want to be a righteous person, right? We do want to live more and more the way that God has asked us to live, and we want to be more and more like our Rabbi Jesus each and every day. I, I, I do this, um, Phyllis Tickle is, um, first of all, a really fun name to say. Um, secondly, she is just this amazing woman um, in, in the church, and, and she has this um, prayers of the people, that um, the orders of the day that happen at certain times during, during the day that people throughout the world pray. And periodically I read them along with um, whomever is during that time. And, and one of the ones, the morning... Um, confessional um, collect uh, closes with, you have brought me into this day, help me not to mess it up, Um, essentially. She has much prettier words than that, but that is my translation of it. You've given me this day, God, thank you. May I not mess it up. Um, And then I walk out the door and already fail. Rabbi Abuha, um, I'm sure you're all familiar with him and his work, right? It's, again, another fun name to say, says this, In the place where penitents stand, even the perfectly righteous cannot. I love that. In the place where penitents stand, even the perfectly righteous cannot. And as he says this, he's referring to the story that we're going to talk about today. Genesis 38. I'm sure when I say Genesis 38, you immediately understand and know exactly the story that I'm talking about, thanks to Andrew Lloyd Webber. Right? 
Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Anybody seen that play? Um, a few of you. It's a wonderful musical that um, Andrew Lloyd Webber did, and it's, he tells the story through musical production of Joseph. Um, and it is chronicled to us in the book of Genesis, many chapters in the book of Genesis. But actually, for some reason, Andrew Lloyd Webber leaves chapter 38 out of the musical. There's no mention of it whatsoever. I bet if you went to our Sunday school class and our leaders, the VBS has never talked about Genesis 38. We have never hit that scripture. I was in here on Wednesday and I was talking about the woman at the well, um, which in its own right is kind of a racy story. But it is like a cartoon on Saturday morning compared with the story of Genesis 38. Genesis 38 comes in the middle of the story of Joseph, this amazing story that gives us such hope that God can use anyone that, from the pits of despair, from slavery. Joseph rises to be the second-hand man of Pharaoh, the most powerful land on earth at the time. He, he goes from being cast aside by his family to the savior of his family. Such a wonderfully powerful story, but in the middle of it, Genesis 38, and it gets no airtime. The reason, if you've read the entire chapter of Genesis 38, it's not that long. Take out your Bible. Go ahead. I'll wait. I'm, I'm kidding. Um, the reason is because it deals with some really sticky situations. So here's what happens. Let's back up into Genesis 37 for just a brief moment, if you will. Joseph starts having these dreams, right? You remember this story that he has these dreams and basically he interprets them and he goes to his brothers. He's like, funny thing happened last night. I had these dreams and um, this is, you're going to get a kick out of this. Um, you're going to bow to me, brothers. Uh, yeah, I don't know. God said I am going to be greater than all of you. Bam, deal with it. Um, the brothers don't take too kindly to that. And so what they do is they take him out to the desert. It's like a little puppy dog, you know. Hey, Joseph, want to go play in the desert? Yeah, guys, let's go. And so they go out into the desert, and the brothers behind his back are like, let's just kill him and get it over with. This is ridiculous. Reuben steps up and says, no, no, no. Why kill him and get blood on our hands? Let's throw him into the pit and leave him there so that he will die, and we won't really have anything to do with it. All the while, Reuben is planning to come back and to rescue him at a later date. But then Judah steps up. And Judah says, you know, it's not good for us to kill our brother, because then we're going to feel guilty the rest of our lives. Not that it's a bad thing to murder someone or to kill your own flesh and blood. It's, we're going to feel bad about it. So instead of feeling bad about it, let's maybe see what we can get out of this. You know, win-win type scenario. And he sees some camels in the distance and they're coming and they're traders heading to Egypt. And they're like, hey, here's an idea. I'm just kind of throwing stuff out there to see if it resonates with you. Let's sell them, get some money, and then we'll tell dad that he's dead. Everyone wins. You know, we don't have to feel guilty about him dying, but we get rid of him. Plus, we get 20 pieces of silver. And everybody's like, totally love this idea. Let's do this. Except for Joseph, probably. Um, and so they sell Joseph. Joseph is taken, as you know, to Potiphar's house in Egypt. Chapter 38 begins with, about this time, or 
at this same time. Translations have it differently. But it is as if to say that as Joseph is heading into Egypt and beginning his story, Judah's story is also going along with him. There are parallel stories of what's going to happen in chapter 38. Now, Judah only gets a chapter. Joseph gets the rest of the story. But that one chapter is huge for us. Because about this time, Judah leaves. I think you could translate this as flips out. Judah goes nuts. Because he leaves his homeland. He leaves his father's house. He leaves everything that he has ever known. And he goes into a land that he never should have gone to. Now, he didn't have the laws. The laws weren't there yet to say, you should not do this, you should not do that. But he had the family history, and the family history is very clear about things. You don't intermingle with the Canaanites. That is not what we do. You stay away from them. Isaac and Abraham were very clear about this, especially when you were choosing a bride. You do not marry outside of the family. You do not marry, especially a Canaanite. But what Judah does in his, we would say, you're all familiar with um, the, the sonship, daughtership mentality and the orphan heart and the son's heart, and he's orphaning out. And I would, it doesn't say this in the text, but I would guess that he's feeling a little guilty. I would guess that the actions that he had just taken, being the leader and and driving this scenario with his brother Joseph were weighing on him a little bit. And he popped. And he goes out into this land that he shouldn't go. And very quickly, he sees a woman, a Canaanite woman, and he marries her. It doesn't take long in the course of the scripture for him to go to this land, to go further into crazy town, and to find a Canaanite wife for himself and to marry her. And then they quickly have three children. They have Er, the firstborn, they have Onan, the second, and Shelah, the third. And Shelah, by the way, uh, an interesting side note, it says there's this one line where he is born there in the city of Kazib. The root word for that is essentially liar. So this one guy uh, from Seattle Pacific University who wrote about this says that um, he was born in Liarsville. Uh, And it says a lot about who Judah had become and was becoming. So Judah has these three sons. And uh, in, in the first son, Er, it's time for him to be married. So Judah continues to descend into crazy town. And he finds him a Canaanite woman to marry his son and enter Tamar. Tamar comes in and we don't know much about who she is. All we know is that she has been promised to marry Er. God says, I really don't like that guy. So he kills him. He was wicked in the eyes of the Lord, is what the scripture says. Er was wicked in the eyes of the Lord, and so the Lord takes him down. Now you have this weird practice that was going on at the time, and it's called the Leverate uh, Marriage uh, Law. So what would happen is, because the firstborn has died, the secondborn, Onan, without leaving an heir, the secondborn, Onan, his job was to provide an heir for his dead brother. So his job essentially was to impregnate Tamar. He wasn't to marry her. He was just to give her a child. Now, Onan didn't think too highly of this situation. It could have been because in that time the um, inheritance laws were, were like this. If there's three sons, the inheritance of Judah would have been split four ways. The first son getting half of it, the other two sons getting a fourth each. 
If there is an heir to heir um, to the firstborn, thank you, uh, he would get his father's portion. But if there was no son, then it would be split three ways. Onan would get two-thirds, leaving his younger son with just a third. Monetarily speaking, Onan was like, this is bad economy for me to give her a child, so no thank you. But he wasn't so righteous as to just refuse the law completely. Instead, and this maybe is why we don't talk about this in Sunday school, he performs his brotherly duty but does not take it to completion. He uses her for his own pleasure but doesn't give her what is rightfully hers. God sees how he is acting and says, yeah, I don't like that either. And he kills him. I know, right, right? (laughs) So Judah now has two sons gone. Both of them are tied around this Tamar. He doesn't understand really what's going on, but he knows that Tamar is involved. And so he's like, dude, you are not having my youngest son. He's too young to be married right now anyway, but in the back of his mind, he's like, nope, this isn't going to happen. So he tells Tamar, go back to your father's house, put on widow's clothes, and when Shelah is old enough, we'll come and get you, and you can be married, you know, we'll perform the levirate ceremony, and, and we'll be good to go. So Tamar dutifully does this. She goes, she goes back to her father's house, she put on these widow's clothes. And time passes. We don't know how much time, but we know enough time for Shelah to be not of age to come into age. During this time, Judah's wife dies. He is comforted. After the time of comforting is over, he decides to get back to business. And business is good. He takes his sheep into this sheep-sharing ceremony. And it would have been something that was a huge party. And they would have consumed lots of liquor. Somehow, Tamar knows of this plan and knows that he is coming into the town to do this. So she takes her widow's clothes off. She puts on a veil and a seductive dress, and she sits on the outskirts of the city waiting for him to approach. If you look at the picture on the front of the bulletin, it is depicting what's about to happen, and it's just a beautiful, beautiful picture. It looks as if Judah is kneeling down next to Tamar and says, how you doing? All right? Come here, come here to the city streets often, you know. What it says in Scripture is that he sees this prostitute. And the word prostitute here is a very specific word because it changes the next time they talk about her. This word in Hebrew is zone. And zone is a prostitute, just any, every average sort of sitting on the corner type of prostitute. And she was what she was. And this is the word he uses to describe her at this point. He goes, hey, you want to go have some fun? She says, sure. I will leave it up to you what the price is. He goes, okay, one goat. She goes, great. Now the collateral. Hmm, what should we use? How about everything that is valuable to you and that will signify who you actually are? So your signet ring, your staff, and your cord. That sounds like a great idea. Judah Sensibly being intoxicated, goes, sure, no problem. Here's everything I have that will identify me. Here's my passport, my driver's license, all of these different things. They go, they have fun. He returns home. A man of honor, he sends his buddy to go find this woman with a goat. Well, I told her I'd give her a goat. I need to get my stuff back. So he sends, and this guy goes around town looking for her. He goes, hey, has anybody seen this 
prostitute. But the word he uses here is kedisei. And a kedisei is a temple prostitute. It's a prostitute that was dedicated to the shrine. He uses this term and it changes and it's a very different type of person. This person, this woman would have been someone that you would have had sex with to perform a religious ceremony. It was a pagan ritual. No one knows about this woman. We've never had anybody like this in town. So he goes back and he reports this to Judah. And this is where crazy town hits bottom. Because he says, Judah, we, I looked everywhere for this Katie Say, but I couldn't find her. And Judah doesn't correct him, saying, no, 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 that wasn't a temple prostitute. That was just a your everyday run-of-the-mill prostitute. He just says, well, then let's forget it. As he is spiraling out of his identity, he finds himself right here at rock bottom because he is accused, essentially, of turning his back on God and following another religion at this moment. And he's like, eh, let's just let it die down because I don't want people to know what happened. This is the bottom for him. Or maybe so he thinks. We pick up at chapter 38, verse 24. About three months later, word reached Judah that Tamar, his daughter-in-law, was pregnant as a result of prostitution. Bring her out and burn her, Judah shouted. But as they were taking her out to kill her, she sent this message to her father-in-law. The man who owns this identification seal and walking stick is the father of my child. Do you recognize them? Judah admitted that they were his and said, She is more right than I am because I didn't keep my promise to let her marry my son, Shelah. But Judah never slept with her. Again, these are the words of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That's right, we do that down the hall too. We have some liturgy. But in this story, right here at this moment, at this moment is the key thing. Because he has no way to say, no, those aren't mine. It's very clear. And immediately he understands what happened. And immediately he repents. Rabbi Sachs says that this is the very first time someone in Scripture is repentant. This is the very first time in Scripture that someone sees the sin in their life, repents of it, and moves forward. A lot of people call Tamar the deceitful widow. And I think that is a horrible description of her. Because that wasn't what she was at all. What I see in Tamar was someone who is being used by God to bring glory. Why do you say that? I'm glad you asked. Because from that union come two kids. One of them is Perez. From Perez, his line comes David. From David comes the Messiah. If you look at the genealogy that Matthew uses, Tamar's name is listed. Tamar. This woman who dis- dis- disguised herself as a prostitute on the outside of a town so that she could get what was rightfully hers. This woman who understood that the family destiny, the family history was imperative. It was about to break down. And maybe she didn't really understand the significance of it, but God did, and God was moving behind the scenes in chapter 38 just the way he was through the rest of the story of Joseph. If it were up to Judah, Jesus would not have been born. 
think Judah understands the significance of how he was living his life. And at this moment, he repents and changes who he is. So much so that a few chapters later, he finds himself in a very similar situation. If you remember the story, there's a great famine and Jacob sends his sons into Egypt to see if they can get food. And the sons go before Joseph, not knowing that it is he who stands before them. And they're like, please help us and give us food. And, and Joseph relents, but then he says something is still stolen from my house. I can't believe you would do this. And they search all the bags and they, of course, find it in Benjamin's where it had been placed, the youngest. Joseph flips out, outrage. This cannot be. This man will be taken into slavery. Just a few chapters ago, it was Judah who stood up and said, hey, we don't want to kill this guy. That would be too guilt-ridden for us. So let's just sell him into slavery. But at this time, this penitent man, this man who understands what it means to fail and to be rebuilt into more of the image of God, says, no, no, no. Take me instead. Take me. It is that penitence that made him have the strength and the courage to stand where a perfectly righteous person probably couldn't have not. As I was thinking about this, I remembered a Tamar in my life. It was after college when I moved to San Antonio. And I wasn't going to church and I was just beginning my career as a fifth grade teacher. And this girl who I knew at, at, at college called me and said, hey, would you come with me to this Christian singles thing? And I'd grown up in the Episcopal Church and I knew who God was and I knew who Jesus was, but I didn't know him. And I wasn't living my life necessarily the way that God would desire. And when she called me, I said yes, because she wore a pretty veil and a pretty dress. And I went to this deal and I heard the guy talk and he told me my story. He told me my story of, uh, of a guy who was lost in alcohol and drugs and who was trying to find his identity in things other than God. He told me my story. And I said, man, if that guy can turn his life around that way, maybe I can too. And so it was this Tamar, this woman who got me to repent and to change that brought me here. That brought me here a, a couple of months later to sing in the choir. That's right. That brought me here a couple of months later to go on a mission trip to Guyana to experience Jesus in ways that I never understood. That brought me here to speak about my experiences in Guyana a few weeks later and to see the most beautiful brown-haired, brown-eyed girl across the room and say, who is that? That brought me here to have people go, it will never work, you're way too sarcastic for her. And yet on August 12, 2000, I stood right here and wed her. Are there Tamars in your life? Are you walking a path that maybe isn't necessarily the path that God desires you to be on. And he sends somebody in your life to say, hey, come with me. 
Come over here and let's see what it truly means to be a son, a daughter. Are you a Tamar for someone else? Are you someone who can speak into a friend's life and say, hey, I think you're off a little bit. Come with me. The fact of the matter is, we all find ourselves in those places of Judah and Tamar throughout our life from time to time. If we truly want to hear from God, we need to be open to those moments. Those moments where we are a Judah needing the help of a Tamar, or we are Tamar ready to bring righteousness to a a penitent man. Next week, we continue our theme of prostitution with Rahab. And we continue the theme with someone who you would not think changed the world, changing it. Both Tamar and Rahab are mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. If those two are, so are we.
Following the benediction, you are invited to come and share in Holy Communion. And as we go from this place, may we seek to be used by God to bless others and to recognize when others are used by God to bless us. Go now with this ancient benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.